Hey, my name's Gavin. I'm, I'm one of the pastors, and uh, I also want to welcome the kids in the room. This is what we call a family Sunday, when we cancel City Light Kids, and we have all the kids in the room. And kids, we want to say thank you for being here. We love you. Um, you are one of our, some of our most favorite people in the church. Did you guys know that? And adults, kids are not an obstacle to church. They are the church. They're our favorite part of the church. So we welcome kids. If they get fussy, that's all right. You can dismiss yourself to the back if it bothers you. But we're going to get through it. Kids, we love having you in the room. And I'd invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. This morning I want to preach to you on the topic of peace. Advent peace. For the four weeks leading up to Christmas, we celebrate what's traditionally known as Advent. Advent means coming or arrival. We celebrate the arrival of God on earth, Jesus on the earth, and as many benefits that he brings to us. And one of the benefits I want to talk to you about Jesus' arrival this morning is the idea of peace. Now let me just get ourselves oriented in history. We're talking about Advent, okay? There's actually two Advents. And right now, what year is it? Not a trick question. It's 2016, okay? We are in, in the year 2016, we are in between Jesus' two advents. So some 2,000 years ago was Jesus' first advent. That's the traditional Christmas story. Jesus comes as the barn baby, and the mission of Jesus' first advent was to bring peace between sinful God and, or sinful man and a holy God. Amen? You gotta check my theology. It's why we sing, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Glory to the Newborn King. Peace on earth, and mercy mild, what kind of peace? God and sinner reconciled. So Jesus' first advent was a reconciliation mission. He came to bring peace between us and him. Now, listen, someday in the future, Jesus is coming again. We believe he could come at any time. That's his second advent. His second advent will bring peace as well. But that advent will bring worldwide peace, absolute peace. He's going to do away with sin, evil, injustice, all of that stuff. And for the people of God, we will live in peace with God forever. Now, for you and me, we are in between these two advents, okay? So we are post-Jesus' first advent, which means that through faith in Jesus, you can have peace with God. You can experience the peace of God. And yet, we're not to that final advent when peace comes on the whole earth. So we are a peace-filled people living in a not a very peaceful place. You with me? And so here's the promise of Christmas Advent. Not that the life will, that life will be without chaos, drama, stress, and violence, but that in the midst of it, we can experience peace. And so this morning as we talk about peace, it's at a good time. Because in three weeks, we're going to have Christmas. Now, I don't know about you, but I think for a lot of us in our culture ironically, Christmas time can be one of the least peaceful seasons of the entire year. In fact, uh, to illustrate this Christmas experience, I've written a poem. Yes, I really did. I wrote you a poem. I'm going to call my poem The Typical American Christmas. Here it is. It's the month before Christmas, and all through the house, the pressure is mounting between you and your spouse. The stockings are hung by the chimney with care, so you overextend the budget and charge high-interest credit cards to have gifts to put there. (laughs) The in-laws are nagging that you never see them, so you argue with your spouse and decide to do both sides again. Then you spend hours in the mall and in a crowded parking lot where you honk at that jerk who stole the last spot. Then you overspend again because you've got to impress your brother who won't actually use that French press, a new dress for the niece, a toy boat for the cousin. 
What's another hundred on the visa? Let's make it a dozen. On Christmas Eve night, you get ready for dinner. You put on your khaki pants, realize you've gotten no thinner. But the pressure from the pants is nothing with respect to the awkwardness at dinner when Grandpa brings up our president-elect. Now everyone is fighting, and the food is now cold. Grandma's had too much wine, and the children are out of control. So you wink at your spouse. It's time to get going. But the kids all protest in a fit they start throwing. When the night is finally through and the dinners are over and you start to feel the effects of your carbohydrate hangover, you take a deep breath and you think to yourself with a grin, you've got 364 days before you have to do it again. (laughs) Typical American Christmas, amen? Some of you are clapping because you like my clever poem. Some of you are not clapping because I've just described your Christmas. You're like, yeah, that's the next three weeks of my life. Now listen, this is why it's important that we're talking about peace. Your family holidays might be hectic. It might be chaotic. There may be drama, and you may think this is the furthest thing from peace, and yet the promise of Advent peace is that in the midst of it, you can have peace. You can experience peace with God and the peace of of God, even in a pre-Advent II era when things are still crazy and chaotic. And so today I want to set our roots down deep in understanding what is the peace of God and how do we experience it? What is the peace of God and how do we experience it? And to do that, I want to look at Matthew 2. And uh, this is the story of Jesus's arrival and the conflict between King Jesus and King Herod. And what I want to do is draw out from this text um, three points about peace. Our peace problem, our peace bringer, and our peace mission. You with me? If you're a note taker, here we go. Point number one, I want to look at our lack of peace. Why don't we have peace? Point number one is our peace problem. Now, let me take us into our story. Thank you, uh, Wilkins family, for reading it. I'm not going to deal with our story verse by verse because it's 20-some stories and it's a narrative. So we're going to deal with the narrative, the themes of Scripture that Matthew gives us in Matthew chapter 2. Now, this is a story that we find only in Matthew's gospel, and it's the story of the wise men. Uh, They've heard, you know, the king of the Jews is born, so they come to Jerusalem, expecting the new king to be in Jerusalem. Well, actually, the new king is still in Bethlehem. So the wise men say, where's this new king? And word gets to the actual king, King Herod, that someone's there looking for the new king. Now listen, if someone shows up in a capital city and announces, I've heard there's a new king here, the person who's actually on the throne is going to naturally be threatened. Verse 3 says that King Herod was troubled. I think this was an understatement. We know from history that King Herod was a particularly brutal man. He was a very insecure leader, probably wore a power suit, drove a big truck. He had some issues that he's working through. He was known to kill off other people that threatened his authority. He was known to kill off family members as he felt threatened about them. He was like Kim Jong-un in North Korea, the weird suit and the weird haircut, the whole thing. So this King Herod, he's playing basketball with Dennis Rodman while he starves his people. King Herod, okay? Insecure leader. People come in and say, now where is this new king? Well, he gets word that the new king is in Bethlehem. So he tells the wise men, wise men, go to Bethlehem, find this new king, because I want to worship him. He doesn't want to worship him. (laughs) He wants to kill him. There's only room for one king in the land. So the wise men go to Bethlehem, they find Jesus, but then God warns 
uh, the wise men in a dream, don't go back to Herod. He wants to kill Jesus. So they go home another way and they avoid Herod altogether. Well, King Herod realizes that he's been duped. And so he sends out a mandate. You know, every male child under two in Bethlehem must be put to death. But God reveals in a dream to Joseph to get out of town. So Joseph grabs his family they flee to Egypt, where Jesus is actually uh, raised up as a refugee. Historians think he grew up in the town in that season of Alexandria, where a lot of political refugees would have gone and found peace as they were fleeing King Herod. So that's the gist of Matthew 2. Now listen, we need to ask the question, okay, we've got this story here in Matthew 2. Why is it in here? Matthew's only 28 chapters long, right? So the Gospel writer Matthew has 28 chapters to tell about the life, death, resurrection of Jesus, his ministry, and his mission in the world. And the Holy Spirit inspires him to include a whole chapter about this early drama going on in uh, Jesus' upbringing. Well, I think it's in here for three reasons. I think Matthew included it. You know, one, because it's true. It's history. So it's in there. But he had to be selective. He couldn't say everything. Two, I think it's in here because we actually see a number of Old Testament scriptures fulfilled, including Hosea 1 that says the Son of God will, be, will come up out of Egypt. But I think there's a third reason. I think that this story is included in here because it reveals something about the conflict of Christmas. This story actually shows us something about who Jesus is and what his kingdom, what his kingship actually means for the world and for you and for me. I think this story reveals our peace problem. Here's what I mean. At Christmas, Jesus comes to the earth and he comes as a king. He claims to be king. The wise men come and say, where is this new king? Jesus starts his ministry. He says, if you want to follow me, you must deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. He's saying, I'm king. I'm the rightful king, right? He starts his public preaching ministry in the gospel of Mark with these words, repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. In other words, I'm the king. And repent, that's an offensive word. It says, hey, whatever you believed before it was wrong, now you need to believe what I say. Whichever direction you are going, you need to turn and follow me. You need to be king. This is offensive. Now stick with me. Here's the problem. The Bible says that in our natural state, we are not at peace with God. We don't want God to be our king. In our natural state, Romans 5 says that before we trust Jesus, we are not God's friends, we're God's enemies. Romans chapter 8 says that in our minds, we are hostile to God. So when God shows up and tells us he's our king, that's problematic for us because inside of every one of our hearts, there is an impulse that says, you can't tell me what to do. We have a conflict with God because we can't both be king. In other words, King Herod's reaction to Jesus is, in a sense, a picture of all of us. We don't want Jesus to be king. We want to be king. We want to be captain of our own souls and our own lives. And in our hearts, there is a little King Herod who wants to rule our kingdoms. And we're threatened, just like Herod, by Jesus' kingship and rule. Now, we see evidence from this in our own hearts and every human heart from a very young age. Those of you who have two-year-olds or have met a two-year-old, um, tell me, what are a two-year-old's two favorite words? No and mine. Those are kingship declarations, right? No, I'm asserting my authority. It's my dominion, right? And mine. This is my kingdom. They're saying, this is my kingdom. I'm king. Bow down and worship me. And while you're at it, give me some fishy crackers and a sippy cup. 
They think they're king. We all want to be our own little kings. And as we age, cultural pressures force us to temper how we express our selfishness. But that self-absorption is still there. It doesn't actually go away. We learn how to work well with others and play nice because it's we're learning that we need to adjust to get more of what we want for our own kingdom. Now listen, here's the problem with being the king of our own little kingdoms. If we need to be in charge, if we need to be in control, if we need to be kings, then there's going to be conflict. Because if God is king, and I think I'm king, and you think you're king, every time our kingdoms collide, there's conflict. We can't all be king. And here we have our peace problem. It's called sin. It's called selfishness. And it's not just rulers like King Herod and King, King Young Un with his King Jung Un with his weird haircut. It's in all of us. I have a kingship problem when I think that my money is my money and God's rules don't apply to me. We all have a king problem when we judge others, take advantage of the poor, gossip, lie, lust, or cheat. When we rule our own lives according to our rules, we are trying to be king. And when we are king, there is not peace with God and there's not peace with one another. And so I think we see in Matthew chapter 2 our peace problem. It's an issue of kingship. But now let me introduce you to the Prince of Peace that shows up in Matthew. Let me show you the good news of this story. If you're taking notes, point number two is this. I want to show you our peace bringer. Our peace bringer. Okay, so in this chapter, we see two kings, Herod and Jesus. And these two kings could not be any more different. Matthew lays them side by side by way of comparison. And so Herod is known culturally for his wealth and power, control and force. He was funded by Rome, so he had all the resources he needed for his kingdom at his disposal while he oppresses his own people, the Jews. That's King Herod. Now we see a picture of King Jesus. He steps on the scene, and his status is far from grand. After being born in a barn, Luke tells us, he begins his life as a refugee. Verse 14 says he had to flee his homeland. He avoids genocidal genocidal cleansing, and he has to grow up in a refugee status. Verse 23 says when they actually come back into Israel, they can't even go back to their hometown. They have to flee to Nazareth to avoid the threat of a possible new king. Now, if you're familiar with Bible geography, Nazareth is not where you want to grow up, okay? Nazareth is a backwoods town in a backwoods region of Galilee. And so here you've got the king of the world, and he comes to set up his kingdom. And you don't find him in Washington, D.C., He doesn't even show up in Waverly, Nebraska. Nazareth is more akin to Wayne, Nebraska. Okay, this is like where these people still listen to Nickelback and and eat at Arby's. Like there's just a different, like Wayne. When you think of Nazareth, what good could come from Nazareth, the scriptures say. So here you've got the king of the world. He's got no academic credentials. He's from the wrong part of town. He has the wrong social status. He's got a weird accent. God arranged things so that the king of the world would grow up literally as a nobody from nowhere. Now listen to this. I think that the scene that we see in Matthew 2 of Jesus' humble, on-the-run, exiled upbringing is not trivial. This is not matter-of-fact. I think it's intentional. I think the gospel writer is telling us, and God himself is showing us something about salvation itself. I think that the setting actually shows us something about who Jesus is as, as king and how he brings us our peace. 
Here's why. Every other religion in the world, every other philosophy essentially, essentially says, here's what you need to do. You need to gather up your strength. You need to become more devoted. You need to become more disciplined. You need to do more, try harder, and get it right. You need to dedicate more time and gather your strength and get it right. Only Jesus comes into the world and he says, I've actually come for the weak. I've come for those who admit that they can't get it right, that acknowledge that they can't save themselves. Now, that's a different kind of king, a different kind of religion in every way. And then you follow Jesus throughout his life. As he gathers his disciples and he begins his ministry, here's this thing that happens. All of his disciples keep saying, Jesus, when are you going to take on power and reign as king? When are you going to bring peace to the people of God? They thought he was going to take on power, rise to a throne, and bring out uh, peace on earth through power and force, but in a twist that they never saw coming. Jesus actually chooses to lose all of his power and die to save the world. The climax of King Jesus isn't a throne, it's a cross. So here's the irony. There's you and there's me, and And we're our own little King Herods. We're hostile to God. We want to be our own little kings. And how does Jesus, the rightful king, settle the score? How does he make things right? He doesn't put his foot down, flex his muscles, and force us into alignment. Jesus actually jumps on the grenade of God's wrath so that we could sit at the table with God in peace? Who sees it coming? Don't you see Jesus is in every way the opposite of King Herod? Do you see it? King Herod, what does he do? King Herod takes the life of his enemies to secure his position. King Jesus actually gives up his own life to secure a position for his enemies, you and me. He becomes the peace bringer. What an ironic upside down, utterly different than anything else in this world's story. The king becomes a sacrifice and dies for his enemies so that we could have peace. City Light, listen to this. Jesus the king came to die so that you could have peace with God. This is good news. Listen, if your faith is in Jesus, you are no longer God's enemy but God's friend. Colossians 1 says Jesus has made peace by the shedding of his blood. The drama between you and God is squashed. The he said, they did that, who said what, that's over. Jesus dealt with the conflict on the cross so that you could be at peace with God. Take that in for a second. Do you know God's not mad at you? If your faith is in Jesus, there is no conflict between you and God. He's not wishing you were a little more devoted. He's not a little bit disappointed in you. He's not wishing he could get a little bit more out of you. He doesn't care if you've been on the paid staff of hell itself. If your faith is in Jesus, the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus so that you could have peace with God. Jesus the king comes and sacrifices himself so that we could have peace with God. That's the good news of Christmas. That's what we're celebrating right now. Christmas isn't a reason to put up fake trees and eat an unreasonable amount of cookies. We celebrate peace on earth. God and sin are reconciled. The king becomes the sacrifice. Who saw it coming? Now, let me switch gears a little bit. Let me go back into teaching mode because there's something else here I want to I show you. What I've just described is called positional peace, okay? When you place your faith in Jesus, what he did on the cross atones for your sins, and you and God are at peace, okay? This happens once when you 
put your trust in Jesus and nothing can take that away. You are at peace with God if your faith is in Jesus. But that positional peace gives way to experiential peace, okay? When you have peace with God, that gives way to the peace of God, which is a peace that you can experience internally. Now, I want to tell you the key to experiencing the peace of God. Here it is. You will experience the peace of God when you realize you don't have to be king anymore. I mean, really. You don't have to be in charge of your life anymore. You can actually let Jesus be your king. Now, I know that sounds like religious sentiment. It's not. This is incredibly practical. What did Jesus say? He said, if anyone would come after me, he should not himself take up his cross and follow me. In other words, let me be king. Okay? When we first hear that, it seems harsh. You know, Jesus, why do you demand such loyalty? Why do you have to be my king? Forgiveness sounds good, but kingship, eh, you know? Listen, it's the best news you've ever heard. Here's why. When you are the king of your own life, you have everything to lose. Your reputation is on the line every single day. Your goals are on the line every day. If you're in charge, then it's all on you. If you're king, then you have everything to prove and you have everything to lose. And with all the pressure of being your own little king comes fear and anxiety, stress and insecurity. You'll feel the need to be in control of everything. And when you lose control, you'll lose your peace. But the key to experiencing the peace of God is raising the white flag to Jesus. You let him be king. I mean, really, let him lead your life. When you let Jesus actually be the king of your life, when you trust Jesus, follow Jesus, submit to Jesus, actually seek to obey Jesus and what he says, you get to leave the results up to Jesus, and the pressure's off. When Jesus is really king of your life, you'll have nothing to prove and nothing to lose. And that's where you experience the peace of God. Now listen, I'm not a pro at this. I struggle with anxiety. I have fears. There's times where I don't have peace, but here's what I've learned in my window of Christian experience. My best nights of sleep come when I actually let Jesus be king of my life. When I know, hey, I've submitted my decisions and my steps to Jesus, I've obeyed Jesus to the best of my ability, I know that tomorrow's reality is in Jesus' hands and not mine, and the pressure's off and the peace of God comes. Do you see it? Letting Jesus be king isn't this forceful, arduous, it's the most beautiful thing. You don't need to be king of your life anymore. And so I want to ask you, is Jesus really reigning, functionally reigning as king of your life right now? Through his sacrifice, you have peace with God, but through his kingship in your life, you can experience the peace of God. Now here's my last point. I want my last point to be a little bit of a challenge for us as a church, okay? We're going to go into this next three weeks, and we're going to go into a hectic season. We have a season to practice this, okay? How do we actually start to experience peace and actually bring peace? My point three is this. I want to talk about our peace mission, our peace mission. Uh, three chapters later in Matthew, Jesus starts his ministry and he shares his most famous sermon. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. Chapter 5 and verse 9, he says this. It's on the screen. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. What he's saying is when we have peace with God and we start to experience the peace of God through King Jesus, we actually become peacemakers in the world around us and we get blessed. We become peacemakers. Here's why. 
The easiest person in the world to get along with is the person who has nothing to prove. The easiest person in the world to get along with is the person who has nothing to prove. And that should be every single Christian. Here's why. We're not king anymore. We've surrendered to King Jesus. We don't need to defend our turf anymore. King Herod, he had to defend himself. He was king still. He had his territory that he had to secure. He had to go after his enemies because he had something to lose. His king and his kingdom. But the magic of surrendering to King Jesus is we don't have to be our, have our own little kingdoms to secure anymore. We're in Jesus' kingdom. And Jesus' kingdom is secure, and we are secure in Jesus' kingdom. What that means is we're not vulnerable anymore. We're free to love people selflessly, expecting nothing in t- return. We're actually free to take some shots in this world and not defend ourselves. We're free to be wrong. We're free to lose an argument. We are free to fan out into the world and be peacemakers. We don't need to control every situation. We don't need to win. It's really hard to fight with someone who doesn't feel the need to be right and to win. So City Light, here's my challenge for you. As we're headed into the Christmas season, I want you to think about what your next three weeks might look like. And I want to ask you, what are some actual, for real, leaving here, what are some ways you can be a peacemaker? If you're a young adult college student, let me ask, has there been drama in your friend group? Was there a roommate, a girlfriend, a boyfriend, and there's been drama, and there's two sides, and, you know, there's two sides to every story, and I'm sure you're on the right side, okay? So we're going to assume right now you're right and they're wrong. That's just the way it is. I'm confident that you are right, by the way. But think about this. Jesus was right, and you were wrong, but Jesus paid the price so that you could experience a peace that you don't deserve and that you didn't earn. You see it? Jesus was right. You were wrong, but he didn't win the argument. What did he do? He paid a sacrifice so there could be peace. I'm asking you, you're right, they're wrong. What would it look like for you to be a peacemaker? To not have to win. To actually pursue peace. Lose the argument and win the the person. What do you have to lose? Others of you, is there family drama between relatives? Maybe you're in the middle of a family world war. They did something, they said something, you did something, there's drama, I get it, we've all got it. If you're in the middle of a world war, let me say this, at Christmas time, you may not end the world war, okay? You may not have a grand intervention, get everyone to the table, and you all hug at the end, but let me ask you this, are there ways this Christmas you can be a peace bringer? What are some little ways that you could be a peacemaker? Romans 12 and 18 says, Insofar as it depends on you, seek to live at peace with everyone. As much as you can do, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. So listen, I know that other person is prickly and hard. I've met them. They're cruel. You're right. They're wrong. I get it. But their response doesn't depend on you. What are some ways that do depend on you? Could you pick up the phone and wish them a Merry Christmas? Don't worry about their response. That doesn't depend on you. Could you sit by them at Christmas dinner? Could you write them a nice card? Could you lose an argument or choose not to defend yourself so that there could be peace this year? You have nothing to lose. You don't need to defend your kingdom anymore. Jesus laid down his life, emptied himself of power so that there could be peace with you and God, so you could experience the peace of God in City Light. I want us to actually be peacemakers and peace bringers in our community this Christmas. Let me end with a poem. 
It's the month before Christmas and all through the house. The pressure is mounting but won't get to you and your spouse. The stockings are hung by the chimney with care, so you buy a few toys within budget to put in there. The in-laws are nagging that you never see them, so you say, "Hun, let's see yours this year, my next, and then repeat again. Then you head to the malls and the crowded parking lot where you smile at that guy who steals the last spot. He must be in a hurry, you say to your kids in the back. Then you circle the lot while the family chats about how Jesus gives us peace when we want to get mad. And when you take it all in, it's not really that bad. Christmas Eve night, you get ready for dinner. The kids are running late. You remember last winter when you got the dirty looks from Grandpa when you were 10 minutes behind, but you don't let it ruin your night. To your kids, you stay kind. You're not there to impress anyone anyway, or even to win. When your uncle brings up political topics again, the Dakota Pipeline is the subject. Everyone's got an angle, but you pull up your chair next to him at the table, and you kindly tell Grandma, it's a nice Christmas meal. Why not go around and share how we feel about what Christmas means to us and what Jesus has done? It actually doesn't go over that well. No one else thought that was fun. But when the night was all through and the dinner was over and you feel the effects of the carbohydrate hangover, you fist bump your spouse. Your fist bump your spouse. It may have been chaos, but you still have your joy and your peace you've not lost because you knew going in it was going to be wild. So you remembered that Jesus was king And you smiled, knowing you and God were at peace, and that in your life, he reigns, and you sleep like a baby, because in his love, you remain. That's peace. Amen? Amen. Amen. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we were wrong, and you were right. (laughs) We all wanted to be our own kings. We have sinned in so many ways ways, and yet you came, and you could have settled the score. You could have proved that you were right and our ways were wrong. We could have stood toe-to-toe, and you could have brought your wrath, and yet you came and said, I'm right, but I'm going to pay the price anyway. There's a debt that's owed for your sin, and I'm actually going to pay that debt on a cross. I could be right, or I could pay the price so that there could be peace. And Jesus, we thank you that you chose the cross. We don't deserve it. We're rebellious little King Herod's, uh, Herod's, and yet you step in and you die for us so that there could be peace. Now, Jesus, honestly, as we leave this place, as we go into the Christmas season, I pray that the peace of God would actually reign in our hearts. As we leave here, we know there's battles to be fight, there's arguments to be had, there's sides to be taken, and yet we would say, I'm not going to defend myself. I don't need to be right. I'm going to seek peace because I have nothing to lose. Oh, Jesus, may we be filled with peace, and may we be peace bringers. In Jesus' peaceful name, amen.